actually a little sick I'm like on the verge of being a little sick and I'm a little frustrated about that but that's what happens when you do not have policies supporting people staying home at school <laughs> uh, when they are feeling ill so everyone's just getting sick around me and that sucks I'm sorry you're sick yeah I am I am too I mean I, I don't know if what public uh, policy I can blame on on this probably simply that people don't get enough sick days and so they send their kids off to school and then everyone gets sick (laughs) i mean i feel a topic coming up that we should maybe address at some point as you know people are uh continuing to be nervous about one of the big stories that came out in january among all the big stories that came out in january january which is the wuhan coronavirus epidemic but that's not what we're talking about today. No, no. But wash your hands and stay home <laughs> <laughs> when you're sick, not just because you're afraid of. Anyway, we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe we also won't because it's getting a lot of coverage in the mainstream press. But I think one of the things, obviously, to keep uh, our eye or your eye on with the coronavirus coverage is uh, the implicit and explicit racism in both the coverage and in uh, the reaction to uh, dealing with this virus. Because, of course, there is zero risk to Canadians. And somehow uh, we're talking about that more than the flu, which is going to kill Canadians this season or any of the other things that we put up with as a society uh, that kill us that we are not told to take precautions for, like driving. <laughs> we can talk about that next week too or not <laughs> that's all that's all for another time you know before i want to shout out some folks who have given us some money in the past week and uh and specifically um well i'll, I'll start with this i want to thank karen aaron e and nadia for their donations and i just posted online that it would be really cool if our 200th patreon could join us and sandy do you know what i'm gonna bet what do we have a 200th patron on our Patreon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within a minute of me posting that, I want to say thank you so, so, so much to Gabriel for your 200th Patreon donation uh, that we just, just, just got. Thank you. That's you rule. so cool. 200 of you supporting this project. That's so great. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And you know what? You know who also I appreciate? Tell me. I appreciate everybody who is putting their lives on the line to protect the land. Yeah. Whether that's protecting the land from platinum prospectors or gold miners or from massive energy projects or from pipeline building. I have so much thanks and respect for those people because that is critical work and it is difficult work it can be isolating and lonely and it obviously can be dangerous when the state decides that you are a danger and that's what we're going to talk about today it's it's an amazing thing when people decide to uh, put themselves on the line like that and it is also the most necessary thing uh, because i do not understand in what world governments both those who call themselves progressive governments and those who uh, are less 
uh, are more more honest about what they're doing can approve projects that support fracking in the crisis world that we are in today it you know like an entire continent is burning and i i just don't understand uh, why we're not doing um collectively as a society oh yeah wait no i do money money okay cool money racism all sorts of things but to do then the thing that is the 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 obvious thing the difficult thing of of standing up and protecting that land in the face of everything being put against you in the state includes including the um rcmp who we we mentioned last week uh, arrested um a number of of protesters um, at the Wet'suwet'en camp, but also um, related to people doing solidarity actions about uh, what's happening at Wet'suwet'en. You know, that's hard work uh, to, to make those decisions and continuing to do that stuff. But that is the stuff that is going to save us um, from the climate crisis. So big ups. That's right. Um, now, if you're not following this story as closely as you might, um, maybe you should be, uh, we can back up. In northwestern British Columbia, there is a fight going on right now between uh, people who have decided through legal jurisdiction that they do not want a fracked gas pipeline to pass through their traditional territory that is supposed to bring gas from Dawson Creek, British Columbia to Kitimat, which is on the coast. Um, that's where the LNG processing plant uh, is supposed to be located. And for this pipe to be built, it needs to pass through Wet'suwet'en territory. Now, each clan within that nation has refused unanimously to allow any pipeline projects to cross through. Where the government uh, and the, the, the government being a federal government, provincial government, uh, and, and of course their agents, the RCMP, have gotten involved is they say that this has gotten approval from local band councils. So there's two different levels of governance and uh, that has confused a lot of uh, Canadians, especially white Canadians who don't have any idea why there might be two levels of governance or what would be the difference between the levels of governance. And because of this confusion, I think a lot of Canadians have kind of let this issue be ignored um, as people are fighting to stop this uh, this fracked gas from entering uh, their traditional territory. Now, this should really be national news, and I'm not surprised that it, it's barely getting mentions. It has been going on for um, a number of years now. This is not the first time that the camp at uh, the Unistoten camp has been in the news, and. The work that those folks are doing um, is is it's it's so critical not only because they're asserting thousands and thousands and thousands year old law of uh, you know their responsibility to protect and to uphold the land, but also because the the work that the folks at the Unistoten camp are doing is to say that we refuse to allow projects to continue that will continue to hurt the environment. And, you know, as you said, Sandy, it's so funny that we are still in a logic where, you know, we're seeing 
massive floods and massive fires and 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 people aren't getting as much snow as they used to get and and so we're seeing the effects of climate change the ocean is acidifying and the the the, the arctic is burning and still these folks have had to put their bodies on the line to try and stop a pipeline that will continue to make climate change get worse it's a, it's an incredible it's an incredible meeting of so many issues in this country which is like you know, the, the clearing the land for money making enterprises, which has been the reason that Canada has existed from since day one, all the way to, you know, what do how do average people stop climate change? And we're seeing a, a, an example of, well, when a pipeline passes through your territory and your traditional governance votes unanimously to say, no, no, this is not allowed. The response is RCMP helicopters and uh, blockades and police and and criminalization to say actually no you don't have the right to protect your own territory. The other reason why it's so stunning that it's it's not more you know front page news in Canada, um, uh, more something that we should all you know know a little bit more about. Um, is because of the international solidarity actions that have been happening, um, both in indigenous uh, communities all over the world, um, but also um, in non-indigenous communities um, all over the world. And so the the fact that, you know, our, our media would be ignoring something like this that is happening and not telling, you know, the, the fulsome story about it, not having it in the news every day as one of the the premier bits of news uh, is is quite telling um, about how our white, so white uh, corporate media thinks about um, this this type of thing. Um, but as Nora says, there's there's so many different issues that come together to to come into play in this project, and I think uh, perhaps that's the way that we should talk about it. And so um, first off, like perhaps we should talk about the government's uh, promise, the federal government's promise uh, to engage with First Nations communities as nation-to-nation relationships. And um, the NDP, um, uh, who are in power in British Columbia, um, and, you know, they're, uh, the assumption that we often have uh, that they would be better on particular issues like uh, the climate, uh, like engaging or the way that they would engage colonialism, because you know, if they if you're being elected um, as a as a government, you know, like it's a colonial government, so h- how they would engage with their colonial um, status. And so, I don't know, Nora, has this been a nation to nation relationship? Does this look like how uh, Canada would engage with, say, the UK on something? Um, I don't think so. And in fact, I, you know, the the laws um, that have been laid down have uh, to to govern relationships um, have been broken in this case. Oh, totally. I mean, it like it is laughable that we have a federal government and 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 the British Columbia government, too. I mean, they just they just signed uh, the U.N. Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, and they're trying to put that into action at the same time as trying to find some sort of way to balance what coastal gas wants with what what Sweden wants. And it's just like, what if these things are not compatible? Then what happens? If you have an actual nation-to-nation relationship, you might negotiate with them and you might come to the realization that, oh, They've said no. And the answer, therefore, is no. I mean, we can't really force, we Canada can't force other nations into doing what we want them to do. 
which is why there has never been a nation to nation relationship in, in this country with indigenous people and, and, and indigenous nations. Instead, it has always been uh, for through force through um, confusion, right? Like the Indian Act is at the heart of so much of this because when it was first established, and if, if you've never read the Indian Act or if you don't know the history of the Indian Act, I really, really encourage you to, to read this because it's a document that, um, that explains actually so much about why we are where we are today. But the Indian Act specifically stopped uh, indigenous nations from being able to become economically strong. It, uh, it, it made uh, certain transactions impossible on reserve. It, made, uh, it gave all of the power to Indian agents to determine what happened with individuals on reserve, right down to what happens when they die with the, their property. It was the Indian agent that got to decide that, not the person themselves. Um, there, was, there was a lot of uh, promises given to allow um, Indigenous nations in the West to farm, except the, the farming implements that they were given were like broken. The, the cattle that they were expected to farm didn't actually, they weren't native to the prairies and so they wouldn't survive the winters. It was just like thing after thing layered on top of each other uh, to ensure that, 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 that Indigenous communities in this country could never thrive um, and actually could barely survive. And so part of that was also imposing and, and, and confusing indi- um, governance structures to make sure that there was always a way for the federal government in Canada and provincial governments to choose the answer that they would like the most based on what community that they were dealing with. I mean, this is a, an, an oversimplified explanation. And if you're looking for more, um, a, a kind of a more in-depth look at, at how this continues to play out with uh, the the, the what is it called now? The the government, the federal government department for Crown Indigenous Relations. I strongly suggest you check out Robert Jago, uh, who's a writer and who's quite active on Twitter. Um, he's been writing about this specifically on Twitter in the last couple of days, so check him out for sure. But you know, we as um, as a country, whenever we or our politicians talk about reconciliation, it is complete bullshit. And, and, and we know it's complete bullshit. I mean, nothing that we're saying is, is something that a hundred people haven't said a thousand times before, but it does bear repeating. Anybody that is listening to a liberal politician or an NDP politician, I mean, the, the conservatives are fucking proudly colonialists. So they can go fuck themselves. But <laughs> the, the, the liberals and the NDP have such a, a, a difficult, uh, they have such a difficulty because they're trying to suck and blow at the same time. The liberals absolutely are the pro-business uh, party and they want business interests to be happy the NDP is also pro-business but they're a bit more confused in, in how they are pro-business until something like this happens and rather than siding with the wet suede and saying yeah sorry coastal gas this is not going to work they're actually not doing that they're instead appointing Nathan Cullen to I don't know do what like hang out with them and say hey guys sorry that we're doing this but we're doing it it's It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. But Sandy, I know the thing that you've been most excited by has been um, the solidarity activists and actions that, that have happened across Canada. Yeah, I think that when people make a call out and people respond to it, it's something that really can sustain a movement. And so to all of the people who organize solidarity actions, this is like the exact thing that should be happening when people are uh, making a call out. So I know, you know, there was um, a, a list of actions that was put out on the uh, international call to solidarity wet sweat and facebook group and so there were solidarity actions um happening 
you know, all over Canada and then, you know, outside of Canada as well in Rochester and Seattle, San Francisco, you know, all over the place. And I just think that that's um, so inspiring that people are taking um, action as someone who's done you know, uh, a camp out action, not nearly as uh, difficult as the what the one that's happening right now in Wet'suwet'en. I can tell you that when people do uh, solidarity actions, it is like it feeds you to keep going. And so I think that that's really important and people should continue to do that. I know there was one recently in Vancouver where uh, some youth um, took over David Ebby's office um, and he is a an MLA for Vancouver Point Grey, and uh, some of those people, I think, ended up getting arrested, but I, I don't see any news stories about it, which is, again, one of the things that just keeps happening <laughs> with this stuff. Uh, but I, I just think that that's um, absolutely fantastic. But I also wanted to, just going back to the sovereignty piece, talk a little bit about uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Yes, Canada has signed it after, you know, much... After being uh, one of the only countries in the world for a while to refuse signing it, yes, we finally signed it. BC, I think, also signed it like separately. Um, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that that's how it went down. And there were photos taken when that happened, um, as though it was, you know, some sort of big campaign, <laughs> which it appears that it was, because um, if that that was in force, of course. Um, some of the actions that the government has taken, um, notably uh, ignoring what uh, the people have said when they've said no to going through their land, um, in addition to sending in the RCMP uh, to arrest uh, people, that is against um, the UN uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, um, including one of the most important articles, which is Article 32, that says... Um, uh, that there needs to be free and informed consent of indigenous peoples prior to the approval of any project affecting their land um, or territory. And I mean, if if there was this, if that had happened, we wouldn't be um, where we're at right now. Yeah, exactly. What happens when these laws um, are erected or or promises made that establish some sort of like hope for people that are clearly like the government clearly has no interest in enforcing even when you bring these things to court and it becomes very clear in a court of law that uh, oh yeah uh, the government's wrong on this one often the government has no intention <laughs> of uh, following through on what's down on paper so then what happens what does one do um, I know that oftentimes people who are not uh, as close uh, to these um, to these struggles um, and although let's be real we're all close to it it's just whether or not you know you're close to it is is the issue but people who may not know enough um, about these issues will often think, oh, okay, well, well, you know, we've got laws in this land and, and, you know, people, you know, the laws will work themselves out or, you know, I heard that um, the protesters are suing, so maybe that'll work out that way. Like, this is, like, there's a pattern to this stuff, right? It's like um, you, something happens, uh, the, the government um, is like, oh, we're, we're surprised, still very colonial, and uh, people take action to support their, their land or to drive the government out, and maybe some of that action is also legal action, and then it's like, oh, it turns out that those folks were right, but then 
the, the project ends up happening anyway. It always yeah. <laughs> ends up happening anyway. And so, uh, you know, it's for, for people who aren't as close to, to these issues, like, our government fucking sucks. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> colonialism is real. And regardless of what is written down on paper, regardless of what strides they said have been taken and the photos that have been taken in the news that says, oh, Justin Trudeau is a different kind of um, politician, it's not true. Um, and we believe that type of rhetoric at our peril and at the peril of. Uh, people who have always been the most harmed uh, by this sort of uh, uh, of colonial uh, destruction. I want to go to the issue now of what exactly they're stopping. I mean, they, they have the right to say no to whatever the project is. And so and I think that that's a really important aspect to this discussion, which is if there's a, tr- a proper nation to nation relationship, nations can say what they want and do what they want that's their whatever decision making they have internally that's their right but on top of this this is also a fight against um against climate change and against something called liquefied natural gas now in the united states liquefied natural gas is seen as being the thing that is going to allow for the united states to transition off coal and so it's it's actually being spun in a lot of cases as a positive pro-climate gas or or energy source, which is pretty interesting to say. um, Well, I mean, it's natural gas, Nora. Well, exactly, right? It's natural. It comes out of, it can come out of your butt. So like, like, why is that a problem? Uh, I, I say that to say that like it's important what people call it, right? Like I, I mean, there's there's a choice being made to call it natural gas, but um, continue, right? Um, and so the like the the natural gas liquefied natural gas boom is being driven by uh, uh, some analysts will say is being driven by uh, the need for a cheap fuel source, uh, especially in China, that can help China transition off of coal. And so in Canada, you'll hear. That, um, that we need to go ahead and build these massive shipping networks in Canada to get this uh, to ports to be able to get across the ocean as soon as possible. Um, and of course, underlying all of it is the $1.3 trillion of investments that have been made into LNG projects. It's like, we are not talking about small amounts of money. I don't even know how to visualize or think about a trillion yeah, right. But the here's the thing is that depending on who you are talking to, uh, liquefied natural gas uh, actually creates a different problem, which is harmful methane emissions. Um, and so I, one of the things about this whole issue that um, you will might not be surprised to hear, Sandy, but maybe folks who listen to this episode, listen to us um, and they don't know much about our personal lives. Uh, my partner uh, is a professor of chemistry, and he helped to mobilize around GNL Quebec, a liquefied natural gas project that's supposed to bring uh, liquefied ga- natural gas to a port in the Saguenay. And it is being pumped up here by our government and by others in exactly this way, that this is an environmentally friendly kind of uh, fuel that we um, need because it will help Quebec transition and, you know, and then whoever purchases the, the, the fuel, it'll help them transition off of uh, a carbon-based economy. 
And so uh, Jesse, his name is Jesse, uh, and uh, another environmental science professor, Lucie Sauvé, uh, from the University of Quebec in Montréal, actually coordinated um, a letter where 160 Quebec scientists told the federal and provincial governments that that these projects need to be rejected because they are, quote, incompatible with the idea of energy transition. And they cut uh, into the logic of the government saying that this is a cheaper or that this is a more environmentally friendly kind of gas by uh, looking at um, something called fugitive emissions. So leakage along the pipeline, which, of course, would be one of the big concerns of the folks at Wet'suwet'en. And in the report, um, they write that natural gas is essentially made up of, of methane, um, which is a greenhouse gas that is 84 times more powerful than CO2. And so the, the contribute, they, they say the contribution of these leaks to planetary warming is enormous. And so this is also at the heart of this issue that as, as politicians and as business people who have this $1.3 billion invested, tri- did I say billion? Trillion dollars invested in liquefied natural gas, what they're trying to sell us is simply a different kind of bad global warming thing rather than <laughs> we, we need to be doing, which is getting off of these projects altogether. If they extend the pipeline to the Saguenay, to the port of Saguenay, Quebec, what we'll have to do is then tank out the liquefied natural gas across the St. Lawrence in ships that are longer than the Queen Mary. And this is from a CBC article that um, that looks at the pros and the cons uh, to, to GNL Quebec. I mean, what what the hell? <laughs> it's like the exact opposite thing that should be happening right now. <laughs> yeah, it the literal exact opposite thing. And so... Uh, it's one thing to, to see a government that's all like, oh, carbon tax and oh, we're going to stop Canada's emissions and at the same time purchase, uh, you know, the Trans-Canada Pipeline or support these massive energy projects or support maybe, I mean, this negotiation still going, but the, the tech mine, which is supposed to be a large mining project that's half the size, planned to be half the size of Edmonton in northern Alberta. Like, when is it going to stop? We Canadians are massive emitters for the size of our population because of the projects that we have going on in Alberta and because we want to expand these projects because forever the Canadian government has seen Canada as wide open and empty territory that they could just take 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 and make massive amounts of money from and forget everybody and everything that that lives there and that relies on the land but we're running out of of time like (laughs) I, I like I just don't even know how these guys sleep at well they sleep at night because they're lying on top of a pile of money surrounded by women I mean like the, which is a, a, a Simpsons reference um, they, they ah, it's this is where I think uh, I feel the most nihilistic about where we're at in society uh, yeah it's I feel like it's kind of hard to watch uh, what's happening with the climate and not feel it um, but I think um, you know just important to mention. Like who, where does this trillions of dollars come from? Ooh. So the Rainforest Action Network has published a list of, of um, the biggest funders to, uh, to the pipeline. And I will tell you, Nora, but do you have any guesses? Uh, where is it coming from? Uh, oil and gas companies? I mean, yeah, but like who's funding them? Uh, well, the, the Koch brothers and, and maybe Michael Bloomberg's might into, into there as well. And, and probably a whole bunch <laughs> of hedge funds that, um, 
that are, are not great. I, I, I suspect there's pension uh, pension money in there, unfortunately, and maybe some universities that haven't divested yet. I mean, like tangentially, like, I mean, let's talk about, you know, it's banks, right? It's oh, like the banks. JP Morgan Chase is the number one backer. There's the number two is BMO. Whoa, I know that bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's, a, you know, there's a list of other banks that are a part of this. Um, CIBC is a part of it. Uh, HSBC, the Royal Bank, Scotia Bank, TD. It's like all, all of Desjardins, Deutsche Bank. Like there's a whole bunch of different banks that come together to back this project. Why? Because they also stand to make tons of money off of this. And so, you know, like the, uh, what, what are the motivations behind this project? Just energy? No, 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 my friends. Um, this is about money, and it's not about people, and it should be about people because at the end of the day, it's going to be about people because I don't know if you know, but the Earth, she kind of mad at us right now and um, is, like, uh, fully intending to wipe us off, uh, uh, our, us dirty species <laughs> off of uh, the face of, of her skin, her... Uh, of the planet and so you know like I just it's pretty disgusting that that would be the motivation uh, to continue doing projects like these uh, when you know it's just harmful for so many people and uh, it's it's harmful for all of us uh, you know the the most uh, urgent people who are going to be affected by this of course being all over the world indigenous and black black people and I you know it just <laughs> drives me trillions trillions I it's an impossible number to fathom I know that there's also other struggles that are happening that are related to this issue uh, and I know I think Nora you wanted to talk about a mine um, that is half the size of Edmonton yeah. Uh, well, before I get to that, I just want to mention that, you know, there were there was a great protest in Halifax on Saturday, last mm. Saturday, where uh, folks um, went to a Halifax Mall and uh, protested within a, a royal bank. And so I'm so glad that you brought up the role that the banks play in all this, because, you know, that it is true that the reason why, it, regardless of political stripe, governments are trying to make these projects happen because they underpin our economy because Canada's economy like because we live in a petro state and our economy absolutely relies on these uh these projects making more money but it's not just making more money so that our economy can run it's making more money so that so that certain people can get far more rich because it is not as if the banks really need <laughs> to have more money they make enough money as it is off of us <laughs> like every time they like they have our money and they make money off of our money all the time that's what they do that's how they exist and the 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 fact that the banks are raking in record profit year over year i mean they'll sell this to you as business as usual right the politicians say oh this is just this is just normal. We we need people to have jobs. Therefore, we need to build pipelines. That's the only way in Canada to have a job is if you're building a pipeline. As if like you can't build a solar farm or build a windmill or 
or maybe maybe we don't need as many people building stuff and people could just maintain stuff or people could go into microfabrication or they could they can we can have a new clothing industry that's not relying on us having to ship things all around the world to get our clothes i mean there's so many ways that we can change our economy that um there's no jobs in in wind <laughs> those windmills build themselves nora yeah and they don't need any maintenance <laughs> It's like, it actually is ridiculous. <laughs> that is the thing that drives people. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but in Australia, when people were talking to the government about like, now, now will you admit that we need to move um, to renewable energy? And they're just like, we need to protect the jobs <laughs> as, as everything's burning. It's just like, you guys, yeah. like, does anybody believe this? I just don't understand how that became the well the rallying cry when it's obviously such bullshit. If we're moving away and we have to design something new, that is obviously going to generate jobs. Duh. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Yeah. And so, you, you know, if you want to take a, a tour through some of the profits that the banks are making, I, I it's an important exercise to do every year. You know, the CIBC made in 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 the final quarter of 2019. CIBC made one point nine, sorry, one point one nine billion dollars net profit. Right. And it was down 6% from the comparable period of 2018. And so this is like obviously a crisis that their net revenue at CIBC is down, right? It's just so obscene. Like the collective amount that the banks make in 2018, it was something like $36 billion. Similar to that probably in 20 and 20, sorry, 2018, 2019 is going to be similar. The, these, these folks are raking in like just ridiculous profits and this is how they're undoing the the social security apparatus that was supposed to set up to help Canadians right this is why they're this is how they're undoing the healthcare system because those profits are not being taxed uh, or they're not being taxed enough the banks are not being taxed enough employees are not being paid enough so that those profits are going to be eaten into it's it's all a huge shell game to just make sure that the rich get richer while poor people, while average people get poorer, but all the poor get destitute. Uh, and, and then to help make sure that we're kept in line because we're realizing that things are getting, getting bad, then they start to criminalize us more and they criminalize us differential, differently. They criminalize racialized people more. They criminalize black people far more. They criminalize indigenous people far more and differently. And all for the pursuit of profits, which is literally the only reason that Canada's ever existed was to just give... I mean, large. It's so funny because you look back at at like Johnny McDonald, and you know we know Johnny McDonald for being a racist and a um, and a drunk and all this kind of stuff. But he also was just such a great um, uh, archetype for what Canada is and, and like has always been because he was also like just a massive uh, businessman, a massive capitalist, and his projects. And he got in trouble for this. Were always intertwined. The decisions, the political decisions that he made, were decisions that he was able to get rich off of, or his friends were able to get rich off of. And 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 thinking about, you know, the the the, the biggest project that was attached to him, which was the the National Railway, 
I mean, people talk about why we can't build high speed, high speed rail today. And they're like, oh, it's an impossibility. It's like, no, we, we built a national railway 150 years ago in this country and it was possible then. Why is it? Why was it possible then? Well, because they wanted to settle the West, steal the land, take as much of the resources out of the land as possible and send the troops to to clear the land. That's why it was possible back then. So why is it impossible today? Oh, because it it's more uh, profitable to build massive infrastructure projects to siphon energy out of Canada to make people rich. And so unless you're a bunch of oil, you're not getting transported in this country very easily. I mean, that was a way to put it. Preach. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, that is exactly it, isn't it? We do what we want to do when we want to do it. Like, that's just how the government works. And quite frankly, uh, they they don't want people to to be able to travel across the country they want money to be able to travel into particular people's hands so exactly and this and and then and then through the lens of freedom i mean how much freedom would you have if you in toronto could like get to montreal in two hours that would be freedom yeah that's a form of freedom uh especially if you could do that for not that expensive right if if we had a train network that you could get on at windsor and you could be in toronto in 90 minutes or in an hour and it didn't cost you very much money. You didn't have to have a, a a car. Maybe you could live in Windsor and work in Waterloo and you wouldn't have to spend your entire life on the 401. And in fact, you could actually do work on the train. I mean, there's so many things that, that we could change about our society that would give us actual freedom. And we don't even talk about freedom in this in this way. We talk about freedom to choose and freedom to have your job and all this kind of bullshit. And it's just like, it's so perverted. It's so perverted. The last thing I wanted to mention was this proposal for uh, the tech resources oil sands mine and so this mine I said it you know would be half the size of Edmonton or twice the size of the city of Vancouver right because Edmonton is a really like large city if you've never driven from one end to the other you you might not appreciate how big Edmonton really is it would produce 260,000 barrels of bitumen a day its potential economic impact would be 7,000 construction jobs which only means temporary, super short-term temporary work, guys. This is the CBC telling us this. 2,500 operational jobs. So 2,500 operational jobs, that's 2,500 jobs. I mean, you just shut General Motors down with that number of jobs, and there didn't seem to be any real problem for the federal government to do that. (sighs) Of course, making electric cars or electric buses didn't seem to be a government priority, I guess. And... There will be billions in tax revenue, they claim, uh, over a 40-year lifespan. $12 billion for the federal government, $55 billion for the Alberta government. Although, I mean, in 40 years, are we still going to be here if we're fucking building mines? I don't, I don't know. It seems a bit, uh, it seems a bit uh, optimistic. <laughs> and so this is, a, this is the big, a new showdown now between uh, Alberta, which is all like, uh, we will fucking die if we don't have mines. <laughs> And the, and the federal government being all like, guys, relax, we're pro-mining too. Sh- like, shut up, we'll let you have your mine. And um, and it's, again, trying to like pretend that we can suck and blow at the same time, that Alberta has to legislate an emissions cap if the federal government is going to a- approve this mine. And that, that cap is going to require Alberta to hit net zero emissions by 2050. I mean, what in the fuck kind of fantasy land are they talking about with a country that is ripping out its insides and in so doing, emitting tons of emissions into the atmosphere? Sounds like a pipe dream. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it wasn't, but I appreciate it. 
Yeah. So I don't know. Like I think that the the message of um of this episode and when you're seeing people fighting back against these massive uh, projects is that um, it does not take that many people to win. It does take small communities. It takes perseverance. It takes solidarity. Uh, it takes uh, boosting the information when you see it to the people around you. And it also means finding ways to organize solidarity actions for your own community. I mean, why not stage a sit-in at the Royal Bank? Why not shut a highway down to say that you're in solidarity with the folks at the Unistoten camp? And look, it's like... The only way we stop things like this is by winning in the court of, of public opinion first, right? And the way that we get this type of stuff into the news is by doing actions like this. It's why people call for solidarity actions. And of course, everyone is going to have um, uh, differing abilities to do different types of actions. But whether or not you can um, do a sit-in or uh, make a phone call or write a letter that you um, send but also post on social media so people know that you're doing it. The point is to elevate the message so that people um, beyond uh, just the people who are in the know about the situation are also elevating their voices and forcing it to be um, to be covered in the news, forcing it to be a topic of conversation uh, in, in homes, um, at schools, uh, in the places where we gather so that um, when it comes time to make another decision about it from government officials, they know that, in fact, their ability to continue being government officials is on the line because so many people uh, have risen up and done these actions. In addition to that, uh, besides just like the the um, the danger to a politician, it's like, again, this type of action sustain, so, solidarity actions sustain people who are doing the actions, but can also just straight up stop something that's happening, depending on the type of actions that are taken. And so, you know, we have the power um, to really affect whether or not this type of thing goes forward. Um, and so far, of course, the only reason why uh, it, it hasn't gone forward is because of uh, the courageous action of people um, who are organizing the fight back. And so, you know, uh, for for us on this podcast, we're encouraging you to join that in any way possible uh, because that's how we win. 